Welcome to Pop Culture Osmosis. My name is Kyle Leith. I'm Ryan Harrington. And uh, today we're doing something a little bit different. Maybe we should take a second to kind of talk about it a little bit and, and explain what we're doing. Um, as regular listeners to Pop Culture Osmosis know, at the beginning of most episodes we do a favorite where we you know pick something that's our favorite and we talk about why we like it and, and what sets it apart from the other objects in its category or, or uh, you know something like that. Um, but recently, I think it's fair to say, Ryan, it's become really hard to think of favorites. At least good ones. Yeah, at least good ones. 31 or 32. You'd think that there were more than 32 categories of things in the world, but it's surprisingly difficult to come up with uh, week after week after week after week. So what we've decided to do instead is we're going to have a couple other of these uh, kind of um, – I don't know exactly what you call them. Uh, intro segments. Intro segments. I yeah, I think that's – yeah. And, and uh, we're going to kind of rotate them through as we you know feel uh, in a given week. So, so far we have four ideas for them. So there's the favorite, which is obviously a, a, an old standby. Uh, least favorite, first, and most recent. So, you know, we'll, 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 ha- we'll have a little bit more flexibility there to talk about, you know, random stuff that we want to talk about, which is really the point of these uh, – of these intro segments, so um, we're kicking it off with uh, first today. So the uh, the category we've chosen is first online community that we were a regular member of. Um, Ryan, why don't you tell me what uh, what your answer for this is? So, um, what came to my memory, and I now realize I'm not sure if it actually counts as an online community. Um, we met online and. Uh, we cor- we corresponded through email, um, mostly. Um, but like we were we were we were a fan subgroup. I don't know if you know what that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but for those of you who don't like, um, back in the day, I watched a lot of anime. Um, this is actually like basically before DVDs. Um, and so. It wasn't very popular, but it was very popular with a small group of people. And so what we did was import usually Laserdiscs, actually, Wow. Um, in Japanese. And there would be people who worked on translating it, people that worked on encoding subtitles, people that worked on proofreading um uh, both for accuracy of content and grammatical errors and um, timing of subtitles on the screen, mm-hmm. both for readability and syncing up with uh, the content. Um, and then copying uh, these files, um, usually on VHS, and then distributing them. Um, so I worked with a group called Slow as Hell Anime. <laughs> um, and I mostly did a lot of uh, distribution and uh, some proofreading work for them. Um, I did a lot of distribution because uh, I was I had access to like an actual VHS copier. Uh huh. So like it it had two tape decks in it. So how how old are we talking here? What year is this that that you're putting all this stuff together? <sighs> I think this was. I think I started. I was definitely the youngest person on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this was in '99. I did it for about a year, a little less. So basically, what you're telling me is that for certain works of anime, like you were like a distribution hub, a, like a 12 year old, a 12 year old kid, like 
making copies of these on his VHS copier and like shipping them out all over the United States. Yep, that is hilarious. Um, I mean, we pretty much didn't get paid. Uh, we asked money to cover uh, physical expenses, postage, and then uh, the cost of physical VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we really like it was uh, it was fan work, so you did it because you wanted these things out there in the public and you wanted to get to know other people who and yeah well yeah you share it with because you like you like sharing your hobbies with Mm -hmm. people who have the same interests and so it's exciting and fun and so you know and i liked it because i got to see a bunch of new anime that otherwise i wouldn't have access to and Mm -hmm. at the same time i liked other people having access to it Mm -hmm. too that's really fascinating. I had no idea that this was something you were such an active part in it as a, such a young kid. Um, yeah. Huh. Um, I, but, you know, um, as, and so, like, the internet was great to uh, coordinate it, but then as, as technology advanced, um, we sort of became obsolete. Yeah, and, because uh, in the Netflix era... I'm sorry, the Napster era, like as soon as you could move these files around digitally, as soon as that was a possibility, you didn't need this Laserdisc copying uh, distribution chain anymore. Right. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Uh, You know, it's interesting, my pick for this, or my, not pick, it's uh, just, you know, like, fact my my <laughs> my first uh, fan uh, uh or community that i was involved in was also heavily fan based it didn't have the physical aspect of yours but i think it's interesting that kind of what brought us both to the online communities on the web for the first time were these other forms of media that we were really obsessed with and uh mine in keeping with the uh uh, theme of this episode was uh, I was really involved in uh, The Bridge, which was a chat room on AOL um, back in, I think it was 95, 96, just when we had AOL at home. Um, and so AOL used to have these chat rooms that anyone who logged into AOL could access, and they pretty much just functioned like forums would in the era of the more kind of open web a few years later. Um, but all like real time it was actually kind of, I mean it was kind of cool for for the time that you could just like join a chat room with a bunch of other people who were all clustered around a you know a particular uh, area of interest and so the bridge used to was like it was where all the Star Trek fans gathered on AOL and it used oh, to the bridge okay it used to have uh, these like trivia contests that I was very into and I had this like I think it was 40th anniversary like this 40th anniversary book about Star Trek that had um, like uh, information about each uh, series and, um, you know, the information about the characters and stuff like that. But then also in the back, it had uh, detailed plot outlines of every episode of uh, the first three series, at least. I don't think Voyager was on the air yet. Or maybe like, I seem to remember the book had like a section where they were like, and the new Trek series, like coming soon, Voyager. And it was like how I got my first like, uh, insight into what that series is going to look like, but I would sit there at the uh, at the computer with this book, and like as soon as someone would ask a question on the trivia game that was happening inside this chat room, I would frantically try to look it up in this book that I had, and um, you know I was only like you know eight to eight or nine years old, so um, 
I never, ever, ever won. I'm also pretty sure my memory of this is a little bit hazy. I'm also pretty sure that at one point I just picked one of the people running the trivia and messaged them privately and was like, let's have our own trivia game. I'll go first. And then I just asked them a question that I came up with by looking through this book. And then the person like responded back to me and we had this chain for quite a while where we were just sending these back and forth. I'm pretty sure he realized pretty quickly that I was a kid, but he was like, whatever, this kid's really harmless. Like he's just asking me trivia questions about Star Trek that are really easy. So I'll just answer him and send one back. And eventually my mom found out and she's like, who is this person that you're like messaging on the internet? And I was like, he's just really like Star Trek. I really like Star Trek. I'm sure it really freaked her out. But then she went in and she looked at the actual conversation. She was like, oh, like it actually is just about <laughs> just about Star Trek. <laughs> so so uh, I don't think I was allowed to keep on. Maybe my unrestricted AOL access ended at that point because it was like kind of during that panicky time when, you know, parents weren't sure what their kids were doing on the Internet. But um it's the first kind of place that I remember thinking like, oh, like this is like the internet is a tool for putting me in touch with other people who like the same things that I do. Uh, and it was all about Star Trek. So that was part of uh, AOL, yeah, right? It was like you would log into like yeah. the AOL like dashboard or homepage or whatever it was when you first connected to the internet through that crazy sounding modem thing. And oh. uh there'd be like a list of popular chat rooms over on the side and they'd be like, you know, like NFL or movies or whatever. And like, I like went out and found the Star Trek one. So once, um, once it sort of moved, uh, or once like we sort of moved away from AOL, did that community, do you know if that community went anywhere? I don't think that it survived. Like, I don't think those people made the jump anywhere else. Um, but I, I really don't know, um, you know, because I knew so many of them by their like AOL handles, and even then I didn't know them very well. Um, I never, I never really made personal connections. I wasn't really there to like. I guess I wasn't really there to meet the people. I was more just there to like learn cool shit about Star Trek. Um, so like, I never, I don't know what what happened to any of them after after AOL went away. Maybe they're still there. I mean, AOL still has that that whole infrastructure, and they, you know. Every once in a while, you'll read some article about the internet where it's like, you know, 27% of people still run AOL, and everyone's like, how can this be? And it's like somebody in, like, the Iowa countryside or whatever. Um, but I have no idea what happened to that. And it would take me a long time to rediscover, like, another place. Like, these days I visit uh, Reddit's Star Trek sub pretty regularly, but... Um, like I'm not really sure where Star Trek fans gathered on the internet in the meantime. Well, that's cool. It's kind of a, I mean, there's a, there's like a, a very charming kind of naivete to fan uh, gatherings online of this era of this like vintage, you know. Like it, I don't know. It's just there's something very um, kind of sweet and also like uh, small about it all, you know. Yeah, well, I th- there 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 are two things about this. Um, one, you had a very small pool of people just being able to access this sort of thing because, like, mm-hmm. people that had that were using AOL in night ninety six or like browsing the world wide wide web web in ninety nine is a much smaller portion of the general population than today. Yeah. Um, and so the, like. It sort of it sort of 
um, picks this like technologically savvy group of people mm-hmm. already, and then to be as passionate about a certain niche subject and seeking it it out on the internet is just gonna you know make it even more specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah, because like yours was even more niche than mine obviously there were way more star trek fans in 1995 1996 than there were uh you know really hardcore anime fans at that period of time but like at the same time like we both self-selected to to go find out our own communities online and and that's why and i think that's why these communities did so well back then because um people like us we didn't like this is how you found other people yeah that had your same interests yeah i mean now it's so much easier since so many more people are online and there's just communities for everything but like back then it was very hard yeah oh but we have such an excellent segue now into i know i was gonna say like my answer was actually for very fortuitous in that it ties in perfectly to our main topic for the day which is star trek into darkness could just be the beginning beginning of what all-out war i request permission to go after him i cannot allow you to do this jim you're not actually going after this guy are you let's go get this son of a bitch you are a poem cock sir there's a ship heading right for us can't even guarantee the safety of your own crew. Now, shall we begin? Um, here's the problem that we have with Star Trek Into Darkness, Ryan. You didn't see it? Well, no, I did see it. Of course I saw it. So here's the problem that we have is that I have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) <laughs> that's not surprising many 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 thoughts and, so, and which is why i <laughs> slated this as the only topic yes. rather than our usual two yes and so um i have notes i have an outline so that i don't forget any of these thoughts um and i was wondering how we should do this like i can just kind of deliver it like soliloquy style and then you can respond after the fact um I can let you give your thoughts in summary form first before I go in. You know, you can just jump in wherever you agree or disagree with what I'm saying. I don't really know how to do this. I'll just I'll just try and jump in where I can. Okay. Well, I guess what we should talk about first is, like, whether or not we think that this was just an enjoyable experience. Like, regardless of whether we think of it, what we think of it as a movie, regardless of what we think of it as a Star Trek movie, like, was it a fun movie-going experience, or did it succeed at that level? And I would say absolutely yes. So I had a blast at this movie. I came out of it feeling really exhilarated. I think it hits, uh, you know, emotional notes and everything like that really well, and it was just fun to watch. So despite all of my complaints as, like, a long-term Trekkie, I want to get that on the record at the very beginning that... um, you know, that this uh, was an enjoyable movie-going experience for me. Um, I agree. Um, and I think, um, absent a few a few things, I think that the, this movie is well-suited to people that both have not seen 
anything of the original series or mm-hmm. the original movies, or even necessarily the first film by J.J. Abrams. Yeah, yeah, and well, and it's interesting because I I actually think this is a more successful film than uh, than the original than the Star Trek Eleven, the the first Star Trek movie by Abrams. Um, it was a lot of fun in that movie. To that movie was a lot of fun. It was a great movie, and it was fun to see the new actors inhabit these roles and the new world and the new look of everything and stuff like that. So there was a novelty aspect to that movie that uh, gave it a lot of. Uh, of uh, it, it made it very enjoyable, but I actually think this is maybe a, a more successful movie in a lot of ways that that we'll that we'll talk about. Um, and one of the ways in which I think it's more successful is that it uh, does a much better job of paying lip service to the fans, whereas the, the first Star Trek movie kind of seemed like it was like a little bit of a middle finger to the fans, like you know, yeah, here's everything you like, but like you know, you got the impression a little bit that uh, nobody really cared about the works of art that had come before in the star trek universe i did not get that feeling with this movie i mean to be fair i think that that first movie had a very tall order of uh, having to make itself so distinct from the the main franchise Mm -hmm. where so it can do its own thing i think that's and i think that they don't feel that same compulsion anymore and yeah, because because they have the groundwork laid out in yeah, the first exactly. Film. And so then in, in this one, they were allowed to be a little bit more Star Trek about the whole thing, which I I really really liked. Um, so I think it's it, it's a little bit useful to start by talking about Star Trek in film because of uh, Star Trek uh, film is perhaps not the most natural place for Star Trek to exist. The vast majority of like Star Trek's content and and storylines and character development and all that kind of stuff happens on television and um it's always been this kind of tricky line that the films have had to walk where they have to be uh nerdy enough to, you know, appease the longtime fans and uh broad enough to get in new audiences um, because you just need more people to watch a film than you do a a television series Um, and uh, Star Trek is also in its best moments it's quite philosophical it's quite talky Um, it takes a lot of time to work through its ideas and stuff like that and kind of grapple with all of these elements and that's not something that has always translated well to film so there's there's, there's often this kind of push and pull between you know, how action-oriented and how philosophical do the films have to be? And, and you see that in the in the film series because basically the most beloved of the Star Trek films um, is Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which is a film that we're going to refer to uh, a lot this episode. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, also the first to embrace any kind of action-oriented nature of Star Trek in film. Uh, the motion picture, the original Star Trek, is uh, ponderous. Uh, might even say boring. It is a very, very slow movie. Uh, and it has lots of talking and lots of, you know, pondering. And, and then Wrath of Khan came along and it was kind of like this uh, this injection of adrenaline into the... Uh, the franchise. Um, How does Wrath of Khan stack up against episodes of the original series in terms of uh, how fans view it? Um, I mean, it, it, 
Wrath of Khan and maybe two or three other films are uh, unabashedly loved by fans. So I would say The Wrath of Khan, uh, The Voyage Home, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, and Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country are all considered to, by fans to be um, you know, on, on par or, or better than anything in the original TV series. I think that there are also um, places where the series has gone off the rails, um, and a lot of fans think that the reason that the series went off the rails was because they were excessively action-oriented. Um, this was a big charge that was leveled at actually all of the Next Generation movies, but especially First Contact, Insurrection, and Nemesis, the last three Star Trek films uh, before the reboot. Um, and I like them in that order. I think First Contact is great. I think Insurrection is actually pretty good and better than almost anyone gives it credit for, and I think Nemesis is a piece of shit. Everybody thinks Nemesis is a piece of shit. Um, and the reason why, all, if you ask any Star Trek fan why Nemesis was a piece of shit, they'll say because the, the, it was taken over by a, you know, a Hollywood studio who cared more about explosions and action sequences than uh, about the ideas of Star Trek. Um, so uh, on this continuum, J.J. Uh, Abrams' films obviously exist much more on the action-oriented side than the slow, contemplative, idealistic side. Um, and, and I think that's okay. I think that's actually a good thing. And, and so the question then becomes, like, what in this day and age makes a successful Star Trek movie? Um, and, and I actually don't think it has anything to do with the balance of action and philosophy or anything like that. I think that a lot of the Star Trek movies, including Wrath of Khan, have proven that it's possible to have all that action-oriented stuff and um, be a full-blooded uh, Star Trek movie. And what I, what I think it really comes down to is that um, Star Trek movies are about ideas. They have... Um, a point that they're trying to make. They have some kind of social commentary that they're trying to impart. They have a moral quandary that they're trying to explore. Uh, and um, and when I look at Into Darkness, I ask, does this movie have those things? And I think, yes, it does. And it, it's among the things that I like most about the film. To me, this is the most important aspect of whether or not this film, like, quote-unquote, works. And and so I think it's interesting to take a look at what are some of the moral quandaries that I think this film um, explores that, that maybe, uh, well, maybe even the the previous Star Trek, the first Star Trek uh, reboot, didn't. Um, and to my mind, there's, there's a couple that I think bear a little bit of discussion. Um, this movie starts out with a, actually a pretty good discussion of the prime directive um the prime directive is this very very famous maybe one of the most famous uh laws to kind of leech out of uh of the star trek universe in, in a very pop cultural osmosis kind of way prime directive basically states that uh members of starfleet are not supposed to have contact with uh civilizations that that are, have not yet achieved spacefaring uh capacity basically once they become spacefaring you pretty much uh it's all kind of free game from there because they're kind of exploring the the universe at their own pace. But, um, you know, when they're pre-space flight, 
you're supposed to leave them alone. You're not supposed to interfere in their worlds at all. I thought it was supposed to, they, they need warp drive technology. Yes, I'm sorry. Warp, warp drive space flight. That's like, kind of like us now. No, 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 no. We are still, we, we are still, have. you know, we are still, we would still be under the, under the, the auspices of the prime directive until we develop a uh, space. Exactly. Flight. Yeah. See, so even I know better than you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so basically, <laughs> you know, the movie starts out with a pretty, uh, a pretty good exploration of the prime directive and how difficult it can be to follow the prime directive when um when you know a culture is in danger so obviously oh go ahead uh, i don't know i mean i just felt like that opening scene it would have worked well as like a regular episode yeah exactly if it was fleshed out and actually it's very similar to the opening to star trek uh what is it eight insurrection um it's actually very similar to that. In Insurrection, at the very beginning, there's a great scene where Data has been working with another crew to spy on this not quite like volcano-worshipping savages, but not very advanced civilization of people who live like maybe like 16th or 17th century Europe. So they've got like water wheels and saws and stuff like that, but not like computers. And he's wearing like a like an invisibility suit. Um, and he like goes rogue because of a malfunction and he takes off his invisibility suit like piece by piece and the so all of a sudden just walking through what looks like a like kind of quaint 17th century Italian village there's just like Data's head like floating through um, and, it, so the, and it's also the opening scenes of that film so I thought that was an interesting maybe unintentional maybe intentional callback but um you know, the Prime Directive says that they're not supposed to have any involvement, so there's quite this good explanation going on in the movie where all throughout that first scene, I was like, man, you know, like, yeah, they're totally violating the Prime Directive by, like, leading these, like, savage dudes on a wild goose chase through this red grass, but isn't Spock also violating the Prime Directive by, um... Planting the... By uh, planting the cold fusion bomb, in quotes, inside the volcano. And then, actually, in the next scene, they get chewed out by Christopher Pike for, you know, violating that aspect of the Prime Directive, too. And I was like, ha, this actually sounds like a, you know, like a Star Trek movie from here. Um, and in that, that little uh, kind of examination develops into what I would consider to be the theme of the film, which is um, how you... Uh, how you handle when your ideals run up against reality like how do you how do you deal with the idea that your ideals might result in pain or suffering or or death or 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 whatever and and how can you keep how can you keep to your ideals when um when it's difficult and and that's a, a theme that star trek has explored a lot um it's a theme that has made for some extremely successful Star Trek episodes and movies, um, and I think it I think it uh, it works very well here, and, and they they keep bringing it back in a way that I think is is very uh, smart and, and consistent. So you see it a lot with the character of, of Admiral Marcus, who is obviously someone who has abandoned all of his ideals because of what he sees as grave threats to the Federation and to Starfleet. Um, you see it with Kirk having to decide whether or not he just kind of kills Khan from afar as he's ordered to do with his torpedoes um, or whether he actually goes and gets him and brings him back for an actual trial. And there's a little bit of like a real life parallel there too because what he's ordered to do with Khan is basically like what 
you know, the Osama bin Laden raid in, into Pakistan. Um, and, um, or just jo- drone strikes in, in general, I guess. Um, and, and it, you know, it's, it's a recurring theme throughout the film. And, and so, I, you know, I don't, I don't really ask for much with Star Trek and film. You really can't ask for much. Um, <laughs> but, but it's mm-hmm. just enough for me to be able to say like this movie has a, a message. It has a point. It has a moral perspective that it wants to explore. And, and I think it actually does it pretty successfully. So while we're kind of talking about things that I really liked about the film, um, I liked that the events from the first movie had uh, an effect on the second movie. And maybe, you know, (laughs) coming from Star Trek's pretty episodic uh, history before this, um, it's actually a little bit of a surprise. Like, besides, you know, what ship they happen to be riding on, most of the time the characters in the Star Trek films have not referred to the events that have happened in the other films or in uh the tv series which is like if you think about it a bit insane um it's kind of something that i think all episodic tv doesn't deal with very well which is the fact that none of these characters ever refer to things that happened to them you know last week or last year or, or five years ago i did so um I thought it was kind of nice that that we start to see how the effects of the first Star Trek film, like what effects they're going to have on society here. In in a very similar way, I think, to the effects that the Avengers had on the plot of the Iron Man 3 movie. So, um, you know, in in Star Trek, they obviously bring uh, the Eric Bana character, I forget his name. Uh, Uh, Yeah. Nero, General uh, Nero. Yeah. Um, they bring him back with a super powerful ship. He travels back in time, and he blows up Vulcan, which obviously would have a pretty big effect on politics and stuff of the day. It's like if somebody just nuked Australia into, like, you know, non-existence. Um, and he just basically alters this timeline for the worse. And so we, we see, that I think, the most uh, obvious way that this manifests itself is in an increased militarization of Starfleet. Um, and, and I think that's really the catalyst for Marcus kind of having a similar, like a moment to Nick Fury, I guess, in that he's like, you know what, there are more powerful forces that work here and we're not ready we're not, for them. So he yeah. starts his own weapons projects and he starts section 31, which is uh, another great fan callback. Section 31 is this secret kind of Starfleet, uh, uh, weapons research facility that has popped up occasionally in, in various of the TV shows. Um, oh. but always in a very mysterious way. Um, and uh, he starts building the his newer, you know, more military-styled ship, and uh, apparently he finds the Botany Bay and wakes up Khan and, and makes him go to work, right. you know, doing stuff for him. So yeah, I kind of like that the, all of the events of the second film are instigated directly because of the events of the first film. I think it's a really nice... Continuity, and I think it's also a really nice way to continue developing this new timeline, and emphasize the ways that it's going to be different than the than the first timeline because some serious shit went down. You know what I mean? So, so I really liked that aspect of it. Um, and while we're talking about things that uh, I liked, I think that they did a really good job integrating all of the fan service type stuff. Like this was a movie that really. Um, rewarded being a, a deep star wars uh, i'm sorry star wars star trek fan Oof. um gonna get some hate mail i know seriously um 
in a way that the first movie really wasn't. There wasn't really that much there that that you could really dig into from a, from a fan level in the first Star Trek. But in this movie, there's all kinds of stuff. There's Section Thirty One, like I mentioned. Um, you know, characters keep popping up that we've seen before. Carol Marcus was uh, an old flame of Kirk's in Wrath of Khan, and but uh, uh, Admiral Marcus is a completely new. He's a completely new character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was she was kind of useless in this movie. But, but I mean, she was she was kind of inconsequential in this in Con too. Yeah, she not was. inconsequential, but I don't she know. Wasn't really much of a character in any of the in the incarnations. But do you think um, how much of a role do you think she's going to play in the in the movie franchise going forward? Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's this is like a we're getting into things I disliked about the movie now. But oh. um, I mean, it, her character was totally underdeveloped and existed solely for the purpose of having some woman in her underwear that they could put in the marketing. I'm pretty convinced. Um, uh, um yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think they someone somewhere was like, uh, Chris Pine needs a love interest. Yeah, exactly. And Uhura's with Spock now, and I guess we got to throw some um, somebody else in there so that he can. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't even know because he he's he does sleep with some like tailed women. Um, oh, yeah, the the like weird the Asian film. cat twins. Exactly. So I don't really know why they felt like they needed to give him because it was a, wasn't even really much of a love interest there. No. Um, but her character's fairly useless. But it, it was a character that existed in the original series. Um, even down to like quite small things like um, the uh, the craft that they take to the Klingon homeworld of of Kronos or Kronos is like it's written differently in Klingon. But um, it, it, the craft that they take there. <laughs> A bunch of people were really mad. They were like, "Why did they change the spelling? This is so stupid." It's, it's supposed to be spelled like Q U apostrophe N O S. I'm sorry. That is just such a. It's just like a a comic book guy moment from from The Simpsons. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, but at one point, they, they, that ship that they take there, they're like, uh, you know, do we still have that craft that we have in, from the mud instant? And that's referring to uh, I Mud, which is the second episode of, or second season episode of of the original Star Trek series, where they find this guy and he's got a craft like that, and they take it. Um, so it's just, you know, all all there's lots and lots and lots of uh, of. Uh, uh, callbacks like that and, and stuff like that, which I think was um, maybe almost necessary at this point. Like they had to make the uh, the fans feel appreciated, and then of course the whole kind of third act of the film kind of mimics um, Wrath of Khan yeah. with a couple important reversals. Um, well, all of which I was mostly okay with. I actually think it works better to have Kirk in the thing, or uh, at the very least, it. Uh, it, it still make, works the same, or it makes sense in this new context. It makes sense in a in a character evolution sort of exactly. way. Exactly, exactly. Um, although I honestly, I sorry, go ahead. And, and I and I did think it managed to be like genuinely pretty touching, even though it didn't have the full force of their original relationship uh, behind it the way that that it did in in Wrath of Khan. Right. No, I mean it was still a movie. I mean, I I liked. I just I don't know why I felt like. 
it seemed late. I don't know, not lazy. I just I don't know to to just mimic the parrot back the ending of Wrath of Khan. I do think that one of the strangest decisions that they made with this movie was that, um, y- you know, the, the the first Star Trek movie was almost kind of like a a, a cleaving uh, of from the established canon. It was them saying like, "Hey, you know all this stuff that you thought was true about the Star Trek universe? Well, guess what? Now Vulcan's destroyed, and Spock Prime is stranded in the in the past, and." You know, like, all this crazy shit is happening, and this is not the Star Trek you know. This is a new timeline. Like, you know, they made it super clear in the first film. Like, this is a new timeline. And then they they take this, like, newfound, like, storytelling freedom that they have, and they basically yeah. just use it as an excuse to remake wrath of khan it's like it's i don't i don't think it's necessarily the wrong decision because i did enjoy this film very much and i did enjoy it's kind of it's uh it's points of intersection with wrath of khan but i just think it's a weird decision um i agree with all that and i think i think part of the problem i had with that that last act where it's so closely mirroring wrath of khan is that so much of like it's in the title wrath of khan like Khan is so angry with Kirk mm-hmm. and his vengeance is the entire driving thing in this movie. But in, in um in Into Darkness, like uh, really, really Khan doesn't really care about Kirk except insofar Kirk, as Kirk is standing between him and Winston. Yeah, Kirk is just another obstacle in getting his people back. So I think I feel like that whole last part like that last confrontation and like them needing Khan to save uh, Kirk's life and all of that, mm-hmm. like it, like if Khan had a reason to hate Kirk and or Spock more, like it would have, it would have definitely been Spock first of all. Like yeah. Kirk, he just, I mean, I guess he couldn't have been too happy with Kirk for like betraying him and shooting him with the stun gun on the bridge of the uh, the military style ship that I keep wanting to call Excelsior because it looks just like the Excelsior, but it's not named excelsior it's the it's like the it's a dreadnought class ship it's not yeah let me see what's it called vengeance he was his vengeance vengeance. yeah um yeah but but i i I think you're you're totally right that like and 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 that's why it does make sense that the kind of capping fist fight there is between spock and and con but um you know uh, it, it doesn't really make much sense for, to mimic that particular scene from from Wrath of Khan, um, but, it, but except in the fact that it does work pretty well, given what we know about these characters at this point, like you mentioned. Um, but speaking of all these people, I do really think that all of the characters uh, did an even better acting, or all the actors did an even better job in, in this film than they did in the first. Um, I think that Zachary Quinto is fantastic as Spock. I think he's actually perfect. Um, Chris Pine growing into his role as Kirk a little bit better, you know, not quite so much of a of just mimicry this time, and and more of a little bit of what he brings to the role. I think, um, and everybody all down the line is really just fantastic, especially Simon Pegg as, as Scotty. Um, it took me a little while to stop seeing him as uh, Scotty uh, as Simon Pegg and start seeing him as Scotty, but um, I actually think that. Uh, the kind of linchpin 
moment in the movie and and maybe the part that that I think works the best out of the whole movie is the conversation between Scotty and Kirk uh about bringing the torpedoes on board the Enterprise and and when Scotty resigns. Uh, yeah, that's a really good scene. It's a really good scene. It really articulates a lot of the, you know, unease that the characters in this uh universe are feeling about the changes that are happening around them. You know, Scotty is like, you know, are we uh are we a uh, uh, an explorers or are we explorers or are, are we military and yeah um, that you know that's kind of what I think all the, a lot of the fans have been thinking about uh, the series itself so um, you know it just it's a it's a great scene and, and it really it, it gets they totally sell it uh, Chris Pine and, and Simon Pegg do um, and then you know Carl Urban as as Bones and. Especially Chekhov does not really have much to do in this film. That yeah, um, Chekhov and Bones, they their roles got even smaller. Which yeah, especially for uh, Pavel, I'm, I'm like he barely did anything in the first one. Yeah, exactly. Well, he has so, his. He has his. I can do this. I can do this. Yeah, he had like that one Beam scene. People back from the thing. Yeah, and uh, like. And in this movie, I was so surprised that in this movie he he like got even less to do. Yeah, although you know, and uh, John Cho doesn't have too much to do as Sulu either, but he does have one super badass scene, which kind of yeah. for it all. I know. Um, it was it wasn't an awesome sword fight, but no, it wasn't an awesome sword fight on top of like a floating oil rig or whatever that thing was. But uh, it's like a laser drill. Yeah. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Um. And Benedict Cumberbatch is pretty great too. You know, like uh, he. Uh, oh, I mean, I thought he did. He was fantastic. He was fantastic, e- even he, though it, his his ethnicity is a problem that I can't really solve, um, because if everything's just the same as it was in the original series, but uh, you know, they just found the Botany Bay earlier. You know what I mean? Then the fact that he's a white dude from England makes no sense because Khan Noonien Singh is supposed to be very much. Uh, Middle Eastern, but I guess you know. At the same time, Ricardo, Ricardo Montalban is Mexican, so he never really made much sense as the right actor there either. But um, I mean, like, uh, I can't remember now. Was there mention of like? They, I mean, they, I know they say that he's like a, a super soldier mm-hmm. from 300 years ago, but do they mention like the the gene war or whatever in this? I don't remember if they talk specifically about the eugenics wars. Yeah, I, I feel can't. like they do. I can't. I think remember. they do. I think they mention it at some point. But I mean, I just. Um, but I mean, I don't think it's uh, necessarily that important. That no, no, I don't think so either. And in, in I mean, and really, if you don't know who Khan is, then this movie may not make that much sense. Oh, well, that small part, yeah, I guess. Exactly. You, like you may not really understand. And actually, you know, it, so there's this weird thing that happened with this movie with the marketing for it, where originally they said, you know, Khan is not in this movie, and then they were like, see, we even can tell you Khan is not in this movie because we'll release that Benedict Cumberbatch is playing Commander John Harrison. And then at some point, everybody started to believe. And then at some point later than that, they were like, but. The uh, villain in this movie is a character from the original series. And then everybody just assumed it was Khan, and then it was Khan. So I I almost wonder whether they wrote some of this uh, movie with him 
actually being like a totally different dude. And then at some point they were like, oh, wait a minute. Like we can connect this stuff all together. Oh, wait a minute. Then we can write all this stuff from Wrath of Khan in here. I like really am curious about how much of this was planned from the beginning and how much of it they like came up with on the fly. I I mean, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it had like a mid midway rewrite to attacking Khan because yeah. Khan is without a doubt the most uh iconic and uh villain of Star Trek and it's a clear example of pop culture osmosis. Yeah. I, I think so many people would recognize the name of Khan as a huge Star Trek villain without knowing anything else about Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um it's like, it's like you have it's like words that you know about Star Trek. Kirk, Picard, Enterprise, Spock, Khan. <laughs> I do think it is kind of an interesting example of like how to keep... We talked a little bit last week about how to keep secrets and the way that Iron Man kept its narrative secret by you know kind of putting the Mandarin out there and making him seem like he was the main villain and then yanking the rug out from under you while you're in the movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then in this film... Um, you know, obviously the filmmakers tried as hard as they possibly could to keep Khan's uh, identity a secret and couldn't. And then I think most people, by the time they entered the theater, knew that Khan was the villain in this movie. Um, when you look back at how they did the actual Star Trek II movie, obviously there was nothing like what you have today with, like, the, uh, you know, the... Uh, internet and fan circles and stuff like that there was none of that but they just said baldly in the title star trek 2 the wrath of khan and then i'm sure everybody went home and like pulled out their like vhs taped copy of space seed and were like wait a minute we gotta watch this episode right away because khan is coming back i barely remember that guy and then they watched it but then the surprise and the delight of the movie came not from oh my god what's the name of the villain but what's happened to him in the in 45 years. years or whatever, 15 or 20 years, however long goes by, that he's now wrathful instead of just hanging out. So, you know, I almost wonder whether if, you know, if they'd released this movie as, you know, Star Trek Khan's Revenge or something like that, like, would people have been disappointed that they knew who the villain was? Or would they have been really interested to see how Khan was like... I, I just, I'm, I'm not convinced even still that... Um, Abrams' approach to like the mystery of this franchise is the right one the way that they try to keep the secrets because it just doesn't work they try to keep too much secret and then everybody just guesses it right and I mean can you imagine like like what if they did something similar to Iron Man 3 like what if they did reveal that um, John Harrison was Khan mm-hmm. but then instead of having him just crush Admiral Marcus's skull, like Admiral Marcus became the uh, main adversary that they have to yeah. overcome at the end. Like they, like he somehow detains Khan, yeah. who, become, who becomes inconsequential to the last act. Yeah, which, which kind of looks like it's going to happen there for a little while, but then they yeah. you know, they have the balls to pull it off, and then Khan think, just explodes Admiral Marcus's skull. <laughs> and like, and poor. What's her face sees that? I know has to sit there and watch. I was like, oh my god, like, this is horrible. He crushed your knee, and then he crushes your dad's skull <laughs> in your in front of you. Like that's got to be 
so traumatic. Yeah, that's gotta that's gotta leave a little bit of a of a psychological scar. But yeah, I I do I would I really did wonder like if Admiral Marcus could have how that film would have been. I mean, he almost he, was, he almost is you know. It, I mean, yeah, no, it really does look like it when yeah you, know, you find out that he's uh, sabotaged the Enterprise and he has this giant ass vengeance dreadnought ship and then maybe that's where part of my bafflement or, or frustration comes in with uh, with uh, you know the, the way that they reset the time the, 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 the timeline with this because it seems like at the end of the first movie that anything is possible in this new timeline that there's no continuity from the old timeline and that you know literally who knows what's going to happen and so wouldn't the ballsiest move given that freedom have been to actually just make Khan Kirk's ally like wouldn't Kirk and Khan fighting together to defeat Marcus for the whole movie and not just that little bit be like the biggest fan mind fuck ever wouldn't that be awesome but I feel like this movie doesn't really have the balls um and, and yeah, and I feel like the original films, to some extent, despite all their flaws, like did have the balls. Like they killed Spock at the end of Wrath of Khan. They literally killed him, shot him out of a torpedo tube, and ended the movie. Um, this this film can't even leave Kirk dead from like six minutes before they bring him back with <laughs> magic blood stuff. Like you know, like I just feel like like. Maybe a little bit of what we're talking about here is a little bit of disappointment that they didn't push some of this stuff farther. To be fair, I think um, the first Star Trek was such a flop that, like, the fact that they were making a second movie, they were like, whatever, we can, like, we have the freedom to do what we want. Yeah, well, you know, like, the reason they killed Spock was really because Leonard Nimoy, like, wanted out. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's not, it's not quite fair, but then on the other hand, like, they could have just ended it and then had some kind of like way to write off uh spock in the next one i don't know and then but then and then because uh 2009 star trek was so big and there's so much pressure mm-hmm. i think on jj rums at all to produce something good and then like all of and then i think there's a lot of pressure um especially with Khan to live up to that that they I, I, just, I don't know if they didn't want to take the risk or if there's a pressure to force them in a direction or what but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because I could see that like someone saying like they want to see the big fight against Khan go give it to them exactly exactly and I, and I feel like uh, you know it works for what it is but I think that what you and I both felt a little bit is kind of like a little bit of like, okay, well, this is nice, but like, why is it happening here? Well, why is this happening? Um, well, and now that we're talking about things that we don't like about the movie, uh, there are a couple of things that I do want to mention that are pretty major problems that I have with the film. Um, and then the first, and the first, and this is a theme with, uh, Mr. Lindelof, um, is blatant plot holes that anyone can see that exist for no reason, <laughs> except to give a cool visual. Um, and I just don't understand how anybody could read this script and not see some of these plot holes. Like, why is the Enterprise underwater in the opening scene? The Enterprise orbits planets. It's what it does. Like, that's its 
like primary purpose in life is to move between planets and orbit them. How many times have we heard Starfleet captains give the order, like put us into orbit, take us out of orbit? Like they, it orbits planets. It doesn't go down to planets. And for this civilization that worships a fucking volcano and has like a bunch of spears, why did they need to hide the Enterprise <laughs> underwater right next to it? Why didn't they just stay in orbit? And I feel like that that is an inexcusable, uh, an inexcusable inexcu- uh, uh, plot hole that exists only because I guess J.J. Abrams really liked the scene in the Avengers where the helicopter lifted out of the water, and he wanted to do a big ship lifting out of the water scene himself. Um, I think. I mean, it, yeah, I think that's what it is. <laughs> I mean, fair, it looked cool. It did look cool. It looked really cool, but it made no sense at all. It really didn't. Um, and like, yeah, yeah. And that is just. Yeah, so we have to hide. Like, the, in the ocean is the only place to hide the Enterprise. Yeah. It's like, or in outer space, or in outer space where they can't detect you in any way, shape, or form. Even if you know you suddenly have to move quickly. Um. I just didn't understand that at all. If nothing else, they could have sent a shuttlecraft, you know, because they have all these kind of like the transporters don't work, but like send a shuttlecraft. They're tiny. You they didn't send the shuttlecraft. <laughs> they had the shuttlecraft in the volcano. Oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> they had a shuttlecraft to pick up Spock and, and I mean uh, Kirk and McCoy, who were running through the jungle. So so I guess they like launched the shuttlecraft from the Enterprise underwater and, and it went no it went down to the planet but then the Enterprise also went down to the planet and then landed in the water yeah but it seemed like the Enterprise had been underwater for quite a while yeah cuz Scotty was complaining Scotty about was it Scotty was complaining but so it sounds really really sounds like they but, but, launched the shuttlecraft from underwater but like that like doesn't see, like <laughs> seem to make any sense with how <laughs> spaceships work like no <laughs> it's it doesn't make any sense at all. And I feel like there is not a single person who could have read that in the script and been like, hey, this makes total sense, the Enterprise is hiding underwater. Like, if you've ever seen an episode of Star Trek, you know that that makes no sense. And um, I I don't believe that these plot holes exist because nobody thought them up. I don't believe that these plot holes exist because um, they couldn't think of a better solution because... It's easy to think of better solutions. I think they just didn't give a shit. And they, um, they, uh, you know, they gambled on what, how much rope the audience was willing to give them and how much leeway the audience was willing to give them. But the place to gamble with how much leeway the audience is willing to give you in terms of plot holes and especially in terms of technical details about spaceships is not a Star Trek movie. Because fans love this shit. As I think I mentioned in a past episode, I had a book on tape when I was a kid called Nitpicker's Guide to Star Trek that went through every episode and pointed out all the shit they got wrong. So I feel like if you're going to have a movie that has lots of blatant plot holes, uh, especially about the way spaceships work, it shouldn't be Star Trek. Um, and there, I mean, are, there are a lot of these all over the movie. Like he's got a trans uh, warp transporter machine that can move him all the way to Klingon. Uh, you know, from like a handheld device. Well, I guess we don't need spaceships anymore. Um, you know, um, it's just all the kinds of stuff like this. I will agree, but um, to be fair, the the underwater Enterprise plot hole literally doesn't affect anything. No, nothing at so, all. And it, and again, it looks cool, so it'll bring in more people. 
But I mean, I I just I don't I don't think the the fact that technically it's it's completely ridiculous. I don't I it, just, it I don't think it detracts from the movie at all. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Um, because it it doesn't it doesn't really solve it doesn't either it doesn't really create or solve any sort of relevant problem. Yeah, I think that's it's it's just sort of a, a visual effect. Yeah. But the, I just, I just, it seems weird to me that you would have these that are so easy to fix and just keep them. You know, and what again, I mean? well, and again, I think it's because it looks cool and they're trying to bring in a big audience. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, and then the other thing is, so at the end of the movies, uh, McCoy wants to use Khan's uh, magic blood to revive Kirk, right? Who's died in the in the radiation warp, warp radiation area. Warp. Core, yeah, yeah, um, and it, for some reason, it's very important to McCoy that it be Khan's blood. They even wake up, or they don't wake up. They remove one of the other super soldiers from the torpedo tube to put Kirk inside to put him into suspended animation. And the question that everybody that I've talked to seems to have is, why didn't they just use that dude's blood? They've got seventy-one other guys there that they can take the blood out of, and they have a good reason to believe that they're all they all have the magic blood it just it just would have taken like one line of exposition to be like their blood is too cold it's all slushy or something like that <laughs> like you know one line of exposition about why they couldn't use the blood of all these other people but they just didn't care enough to solve the plot hole with a single line in a script like a throwaway line in a script um See, that is a much better plot hole that needed to be examined mm-hmm. because I, this yeah. is a problem in the movie that could otherwise be resolved yeah exactly whereas um, the underwater enterprise literally affects nothing yeah yeah uh, um, well in this kind and of, i also oh, go ahead. well i mean i also want like why does khan really need to be alive yeah couldn't he just be dead like couldn't <laughs> they just yeah couldn't like the blood like they take the blood out of him when he's alive. I mean, it's not like it's doing anything in the syringe. So, yeah, ostensibly they kill him and draw some blood and put it in Kirk. The magic blood was my biggest problem with the movie, and it kind of parallels the red gooey mass that started the chain reaction on on the surface of Vulcan back in the first Star Trek movie. In that it's a magical substance who's who has really unclear effects and no one really knows where it came from or why it exists. You know? In the original series, Khan emphatically did not have magic blood. He did not regenerate. He was like he was like a Captain America kind of. He was like the ultimate expression of what man could be in terms of like, you know, physical and mental prowess. But he was not a Superman who could just regenerate or shake off stun blasts like that like they were nothing right um and and this is another big problem that i had with the movie is that narratively they were constantly undermining the character's core competencies so the most interesting thing about khan is not that he can take like a million punches it's that he's an incredibly smart brilliant scientific and tactical mind um, but really, his strength in the movie 
comes down mostly to his ability to get punched in the face a lot and to survive a spaceship crash into the downtown San Francisco area. Mm. Um, at one point in the movie, Spock calls up old Spock and says, have you heard of Khan? And Spock says, I know that I, old Spock says, you know, I know that I told you that I would never reveal anything about the, uh, past to you, but, but here's everything about the past. Here's everything I need to know. And then, you know, he basically says Khan is this super dangerous guy who we did face. And then the younger Spock or the, you know, the Spock from this timeline says, his is the last question before they cut away is like how did you beat him and so what's interesting about spock is that he's brilliant and logical and thinks things through and comes up with his own solutions to every problem except that in this movie he doesn't he just calls spock prime and gets spock prime to tell him how they defeated khan in the other timeline and then uses that to come up with his little uh you know um gambit to transport over just the torpedo tubes um and there was no reason for that except to have leonard nimoy in the movie again i think you know what i mean right and then the last one and maybe the most egregious one is that the interesting thing about bones about dr mccoy is that he's a brilliant medical mind who can come up with uh you know new uh new cures or or new solutions to medical problems and in this movie, they literally give him a magic life-regenerating serum so that he doesn't have to actually do any work. <laughs> the one medical thing that Bones does in his whole movie is he injects some blood into a dead Tribble. Like, and then he forgets about it. <laughs> it's not... If they could have just eliminated the magic blood thing completely and had McCoy find some way to save Kirk from dying after the radiation poisoning... And boom, you've eliminated the plot hole, and you've given McCoy something to do, and you've proven what a good doctor he is, and now, uh, you know, Kirk has a reason to feel grateful towards McCoy instead of just toward Khan for having this magic blood. Or you could say, hey, Khan's really super brilliant. Maybe he came up with some kind of serum that does this regenerating, and that's how he saved a little girl in the beginning, and that's how he saved Kirk because they captured Spock, uh, they captured Khan alive because they needed him to tell them how to make the magic serum, you know? But they didn't do that either. It's just a property of who he is that he's got this ability to take so many punches. It's just a property of who he is that he can regenerate stuff. And so, I guess, fuck McCoy and all his medical knowledge because his job just got eliminated because now they have a synthetic version of Khan's blood that will cure apparently almost anything short of decapitation. So it's just be- frustrating. It's a movie at at all at every turn. It seems to be like, hey, you know that thing that that character is really good at? Yeah, it doesn't matter. We're just going to give him the answer. To be fair, McCoy did synthesize, like the synthetic th- version of it. I guess. Yeah, yeah. So that was something. But I mean, I I will agree with you for the most part. So that was I thought I thought that was very very frustrating. Like through the whole movie, and it was doubly frustrating because. My biggest problem was these blatant plot holes that exist for no reason. And my second problem was that many of those blatant plot holes undermined the characters. So it's not just that they're plot holes. Because plot holes I can live with. I, can, I really can. There are plenty of plot holes in the original movies. But it's like if there was a plot hole in Star Trek II that made it so that Kirk wasn't really the one who killed Khan. And it's like, no, like you need that. That's the point of the movie. That's the cathartic <laughs> of the movie is, is you know, the the end of that whole kind of uh, submarine-esque battle sequence in space. Uh, it's just a... Uh, uh, 
um, it's uh, frustrating. Um, and I actually think the the worst part about them undermining these characters' strengths is that, like Scotty, um, in that torpedo scene we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. very clearly shows like him being on top of being chief engineer. Mm-hmm. And then they um, remove him from that role for the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although he does get a chance to be, you know, a little bit useful hanging out on the other ship, just sab- sabotaging everything. And, you know, it's, 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 it's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then my last big problem with the movie, um, is that the pace is a little bit ridiculous. Like, I enjoy that they've ejected some, you know, some adrenaline, some oomph into the series. Um, but even more so than the previous Star Trek, this kind of seems like a f- movie that's a... F- it's, it seems like it's afraid that it's about to lose your attention. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so they're constantly raising the stakes in every single scene to where there's literally almost not a scene in this movie where someone's not in risk of dying and it just gets a little bit wearying and i think that the most egregious example of this is when uh marcus and mccoy beam down to the surface of that moon to open up one of the torpedoes right so they beam, uh. down, to the, they beam down to the surface of this moon and it would be enough i think both from a tonal perspective and from a plot perspective it would be enough for them to simply find a way to open the torpedo look inside the torpedo and find out that there's a dude inside the torpedo. But that's not all that they do. They get it. They, McCoy gets his arm stuck in the torpedo and then it's almost going to explode. And this is like supposed to be very tense, but really not that tense because you know that these two characters are not going to die, you know, 45 minutes into a 90 minute or two hour film, but it's supposed to be tense scene where they're like, well, they disarm it in time. Will they disarm it in time? And then at the end, Marcus literally just rips the whole control panel out of the torpedo. Like fuck cutting the 23rd wire. She rips the whole front panel off the torpedo and it like disarms itself at the very last second and releases McCoy's arm. And like, it just seemed like it was like, Hey, like this was going to be a scene where you find out some really crucial piece of plot information. Um, but like, we're afraid that that's going to lose the audience's uh, the audience's uh, attention. So, <laughs> so, like, let's throw in this life or death situation in there for no reason. Why did the missile arm? I don't, I still don't understand why there were live warheads in those missiles. I thought the point of that scene was that when the missiles quote unquote detonate, just a dude comes out instead of a bomb. You know what I mean? Like I thought, well, I thought, well, I thought that the missile had, in fact, detonated by releasing its payload by opening up and showing this guy inside. But then later, Spock uses all the torpedoes to blow up Khan's ship. So I'm confused right. about what they were actually. Did they actually have real missiles on there? Because yeah, so the like the missile, because um, uh, Khan developed the missile mm-hmm. in Lab Thirty One, right? Yeah. And showed it to Marcus, and Marcus was like, okay, whatever, awesome. And then Khan hid his people in the missiles. That seemed like a really bad plan. Um, and because he thought he was going to be able to smuggle them out somehow. But I don't hiding know. your people on top of live warheads. Yeah, and because and he, t- and he took out the... Um, he took out the propulsion system in the missile, is that right? Uh, I don't know. 
I don't remember now because they said something when they after it opened. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't really understand that. I was surprised when all the missiles exploded on board the Vengeance because I thought that they did not have a live warhead in them because I thought that they had these people in them instead. I I'm and I'm still really confused why why that one armed. Yeah. Anyway, um, I thought yeah. It just seems like they're like you know. It kind of undermines the self-confidence of the movie, I guess. That uh, they seem like they have to make such a big play for your attention. It's kind of like if, if if Next Generation was all the way on one end of the spectrum, where they could have an entire episode about these this alien race that communicates entirely through metaphor, and they have to figure out what the metaphors mean. Like, on the all the way on the other end of the spectrum is this J.J. Abrams movie, in which is like so f- terrified of losing your attention that it puts its people in harm's way every 10 seconds. And then, you know, all the rest of the Star Trek movies and episodes fall, you know, elsewhere on that continuum. Yeah. Which is okay. You know, I think it's fine. I think that these two Trek movies, I think that the first one and, and, and Into Darkness have been like a little bit of a defibrillation for the Star Trek franchise. Like it was dead and then we shocked it and it came back to life. And I think it's good. And I think these movies are good. And I really enjoy this movie, as I say. But I also can't help but feel a little bit of relief that it seems like Abrams is maybe moving on to focus on Star Wars. And Which will also be interesting. Has not been signed for another Star Trek movie, and as far as I know, maybe won't be signed for another Star Trek movie. And I would love to see, now that the franchise exists at all again, and now that he's given kind of a blueprint for how Star Trek can work in film in this day and age i would love to see what somebody else could do with it um preferably not alex kurtzman and roberto orsi who are the screenwriting duo that uh wrote this movie and also wrote many other really bad movies um like uh the island and watchmen and cowboys and aliens and all the transformers movies oh wow they have a very interesting track record, don't they? Yes, exactly. So I would love to see this pass into the hands of somebody who uh, are, are not the same people who wrote Transformers. I just don't feel like Star Trek and Transformers should be in the same hands. Um, or Star Trek and Star Wars, for that matter. So I'm glad. I think Star Wars is a better fit stylistically for Abrams. Um, I'm really excited to see what he does with Star Wars. And I'm grateful for what he's done for Star Trek, but also happy that he's moving on, if that makes any sense at all. Anyway, uh, I think we said just about as much as I had to say on the Star Trek movie. I think it's kind of messed up that, like, the USS Vengeance just crashed into San Francisco and, like, destroys everything. <laughs> Me too. It's kind of it's kind of like, hey, guys, you actually, like, didn't really stop Khan at all. He still killed a <laughs> lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Like, I thought, like, as it was crashing, like, oh, the Enterprise will, like, balance itself and, like, I don't know, shoot some lasers and... Knock it into the water or something. Yeah. Well, and I can- no, just <laughs> and everyone is just like running and dying. Well, because there's this there's this incredibly beautiful uh, shot that I really think the VHX or the VFX team uh, deserves a lot of credit for, where the Enterprise is falling. It's just falling like a rock, 
and it falls through the clouds in this very disconcerting way. And then it waits for a couple seconds, and then dun 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 dun. There's this great music and trumpets, and the Enterprise rises back out of the clouds, and it's all triumphant. And you're like, yeah, the Enterprise is saved. But then, fucking vengeance just crashes into San Francisco and kills like literally probably thousands of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just like, excuse me, <laughs> your main characters were supposed to have just prevented this guy from doing any more damage, but I guess they actually just gave him the perfect hurdling hunk of metal. Uh, to throw at San Francisco. Um, I do think that is a, a, a little bit of a structural problem <laughs> with the movie. Where it's like, <laughs> you guys actually failed at your primary task, which was keeping Khan from killing any more people. <laughs> so, why'd you move here? My mom had to get a restraining order against my stepdad. He has emotional problems. Oh, I have those two. What kind of emotional problems does your dad have? I met a new friend. Real or imaginary? Here come, Tony. Imaginary. Well, it's getting pretty late. Should we move on to Donnie Darko? Uh, yeah. Um, Donnie Darko is an interesting film. I, don't, I feel like I actually don't have too much to say here. I was really interested to see this movie because I loved it so much back in high school. I um, did too. And I think what's interesting about watching it now is that the things that I appreciate about the movie and that I think the movie does well now, um, I think are the things I thought were kind of boring when I was in high school. And the things I loved about it when I was in high school, I now think are a little bit silly. No, yeah, that that makes a – I I think to a certain degree – excuse me, to a certain degree I agree with you. Like what I enjoyed watching the movie this time is – you know, there, there's you know, Richard Kelly who wrote and directed the movie. He's got a really great ear for dialogue. I loved all the family scenes. I loved the school scenes. I loved the kind of satirization of a lot of elements of the 80s, um, especially like the self-help movements and stuff like that. Like all that stuff works super well. And what I think doesn't work very well is the whole time travel element, which I was obsessed with in high school. Um and which here comes off as being a little bit, oh, not a little bit, very silly and kind of self-important, I would say. Like, you know, the the whole mythology of it and everything to do with the book and Roberta Sparrow and all that kind of stuff. Like, I'm not as entranced anymore with, like, the word cellar door or, like, you know, the the every living creature on Earth dies alone. Those seem, things seem a little bit silly at this point. But I still think, like, suck a fuck is hilarious. Right. And all the scenes between all the family members are written so well. Um, um, yeah, I still really like that. Um, like this, uh, this world that he's created is so much more fleshed out than even the movie gets into, and there's so much more behind it. Mm-hmm. There's so much depth. But um, when I watched it when I was younger. And, like, everything kind of tied together, and one thing led to the next because, like, of this whole tangent universe concept, and, like, everything was driving to this one moment. Mm-hmm. And now I kind of watched it, and I felt like it seemed like a really lazy way to excuse everything pushing the plot forward, <laughs> which is like, oh, like, uh, Drew Barrymore has this cellar door quote up on the board mm-hmm. because it's a beautiful linguistic sound which causes Donnie to go through Roberta Sparrow's cellar door 
Mm-hmm. And like this, now I see it as like kind of a really lazy way to justify like why that happens. Like to, and, yeah. Like calling them like the manipulated living or whatever. Like, I like the concept that like there's this whole book of, uh, like, I like the concept of the mythology behind everything. I just think the way it was executed or causes everything to seem just really lazy. Yeah. I think that's I think that's pretty true, and, and um, y- you know, there's a lot of kind of like predestination stuff going on where you know he seems to know things subconsciously that are going to happen in the future. Like he names the rabbit Frank, and he, um, you know, it's the same rabbit, obviously, and it has the same kind of eye wound that Frank had, and all that kind of stuff. So you know, there's a little bit of a of an element there where you can. If it was done a little bit more skillfully, it would have seemed really cool that he was pulling together all of these kind of disparate elements into, you know, and they all kind of crystallize in the in the incident at Roberta Sparrow's house and and seem, you know, really important. And it, it almost does that, and maybe it did that when I was in high school, but at the same time, it doesn't, doesn't really work. No. We yeah. kind of see through it now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, now you're like, oh, wait a minute, like... There's literally no reason for her to be writing Celador on her uh, on her uh, blackboard as she's leaving the school, except as a smoking gun. Exactly. And again, like the excuse is that they're all supposed to be driving Donnie to this point. Yeah, exactly. To, to save the world, but it's it's just. Everything then seems like a deus ex machina. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think it's interesting, I, and I, I you know I wonder how um, how successful uh, you know a, a, a Richard Kelly written just eighties period piece would have been. You know, like if you strip out all the time travel shit from Donnie Darko and make it just about this kid who sees this weird rabbit and, like, write a different ending, is that movie still, like, a cult sensation the way this movie was? Maybe not. Maybe you needed that kind of uh, sci-fi or futuristic aspect to it, but um, especially this time, everything I enjoyed about this movie happened in between the the stuff that, uh, that made it kind of uh, so famous, I guess. The sort of slice of life. Exactly, the sort of slice of life stuff, which it spends the vast majority of its time on, honestly. Like, um, the, the, the family dinner mm-hmm. is a great scene. Anyway, I'm not going to squeeze one out until I'm, like, 30. Will you still be working at the yarn barn? Because I hear that's a really great place to raise children. That's really funny. No, I think a year of partying's enough. She'll be going to Harvard next fall. Mom, I haven't even gotten in yet. Do you honestly think Michael Dukakis will provide for this country till you're ready to squeeze one out? Yeah, I do. Hmm. When can I squeeze one out? Not until eighth grade. Donnie, you're such a dick. <laughs> Whoa, Elizabeth. A little hostile there. Maybe you should be the one in therapy, then Mom and Dad can pay someone $200 an hour to listen to all your thoughts, so we don't have to. Okay. You want to tell Mom and Dad why you stopped taking your medication? You're such a fuck-ass. <laughs> Please. Did you just call me a fuck-ass? Elizabeth, that's enough. You can go suck a fuck. Oh, please tell me, Elizabeth. How exactly does one suck a fuck? (laughs) You want me to tell you? Please, tell me. We will not have this at the dinner table. Stop. 
The family dinner is a great scene. The whole kind of Tears for Fears accompanied uh, soundtrack to him leaving the uh, the or like the school bus and kind of introducing oh, all that, the characters and, around that, the school. That first Tears for Fears mm-hmm. song, yeah, that no, that's a great scene. Is awesome. Um, um, like, I, I even like the all this thing in the the gym class watching <laughs> uh, that video and him like just being like, "This is ridiculous." Yeah, I Things love. They're not just fear and love. I love everything about that uh, that self help guru played by Patrick Swayze. You know, I love that he's eventually re- you know uh, revealed to be like a like a child pornographer. Um, I love it. Dungeon is such a great <laughs> phrase. <laughs> it's like it's everything horrible that could like come out. Yeah, and 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 I mean, and there, uh, all of the characters in the movie are sketched out really well. I found myself really appreciating the character of the dad, who like wants to be mad at Donnie, but is also really amused by everything that he does. So, like, he can barely stop himself from laughing when that horrible gym teacher is like, he told me to insert the lifeline forcibly into my anus! And the guy, like, just gives, like, this little cough thing. It's like... Like, he, like, can't quite... Like, he wants to be angry, and he wants to be, like, a responsible parent, but at the same time... But he knows that, like, she's kind of a... Exactly. Exactly. And I actually think that uh, I forget the name of the actor who plays the dad, but I think he and Mary McDonnell, who would later go on uh, to be in Battlestar Galactica and get quite famous because of that, um, I think they have a really great uh, chemistry and they really inhabit those roles very well. I think both of them um, really sell a lot of this movie. Yeah, um, honestly, I I think the acting in general in this movie was, yeah, is actually, surprisingly good. That's pretty true. Both Jill and Halls are great. Um, Jenna Malone, Maloney, Malone. I think it's Malone. I don't is, know though. It's pretty great. Um, you know, Seth Rogen kind of pops up there weirdly. Yeah, it was fun seeing him play like not the role he normally plays. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but you, you know, so is this a successful or like a like does the, it does this movie succeed at what it's trying to do? Like, I guess so. It got it got pretty. It was a kind of a cult classic there for a, a um, while. Yeah, I think I definitely think that the the mythos of of this the time travel aspect of the movie is a big part of that because yeah. there's a there's a lot of internet discussion about it. Yeah, and the, well, then they really kind of uh, encouraged that too. They had this whole like. Um, like a website that gave you little clues about it and stuff. I, I never actually did this, but I'm, I can I see on Wikipedia that they, you know, seem to try to get that kind of viral marketing aspect of it too. Right. It wasn't the best part of this movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty true. So, I think it's interesting. I think you know, it's not a particularly serious attempt to grapple with what time travel actually means. Um. But more uh, uh, an excuse to, you know, to to tie the plot together, which is kind of how a lot of these movies have been, you know. Yeah, well, um, yeah. Um, except for maybe I would think um, maybe Planet of the Apes and, and Terminator or something like that. Um, but I think it's interesting because next time we're going to watch Primer, which is a super serious attempt to grapple with what time travel would actually mean in a realistic way. Yeah, I think because most of these films that we've seen up to this point, well, I guess all four of these films have been one way or 
another. I mean, I don't not really a buildings Ramon, but but the whole point of the movie is sort of you see the growth of the main character as they mm-hmm. move through uh, because of this time travel event. Yeah, and I think it's very telling that the name of this movie is Donnie Darko and not like Time Loop or something. You know, this this movie is not concerned with the time travel. It's concerned with how this uh, kid discovers and accepts his destiny. Yeah. Um. And but next next time, Primer is all about. <laughs> yeah, if we can even. It, yeah, I'm. I've only watched this movie once. It was a bewildering experience, and uh, I'm fascinated to see it again. Oh, uh, side note: Did you watch? Donnie Darko or the Donnie Darko director's cut? I just watched the regular version. I okay. have seen the director's cut in the past, but I forgot. I don't remember what's in it. It's it's a few more scenes. Things like you find out. I think uh, I I also watched uh, the regular version because it's what I had on DVD, and mm. I found out recently that Netflix took it off. Mm. It's like I saw it like two weeks ago. I'm like, oh, perfect. I can just watch it on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And then I went to search for it last night. I'm like, ah, not available. I, feel I have like to go it was, get my DVDs. I feel like the director's edition had more with the like, Korean or, or Chinese girl. I feel like I remember uh, her being uh, in the, I feel like I remember her being in the, in the movie more. Her name Samantha, right? Samantha, is that her name? Charita? No, Samantha's the, the daughter. Samantha's the daughter. Yeah. Charita Chen. Yeah, yes. And actually, that, that's one thing that I think... I think that's one of the weirdest and weakest points of the film, that character. Yeah. In a, in a film where everything, like... Has some significance. ...really ties together. Like, it doesn't connect to anything. Like, I've, 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 re- I've read some things about her, but they, they're, they're so, like, vague and... Oh, sure. Yeah. That sort of makes sense. Like, she represents innocence or whatever. Yeah. And I the swear to God, I have... I swear to God, I have in my mind the image of a shot of the, um, paralleling the shot in the beginning of the movie where they kind of pan around the airplane uh, engine that has fallen onto Donnie's bed. I swear to God, I have in my mind the image of that same shot, but with Donnie on the bed, like dead and all bloody and stuff. Yeah. But it was not in this movie, so I... I think no. it has to be in the director's cut because I, I swear to God I've seen this before. I think so too because yeah. I, I remember that too. Yeah. And then um, there's the reveal that the pills he takes are placebos. Oh, I so did he, not know that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting and um, seems uh, unwise on the part of his psychiatrist. Yeah, especially after he reveals that he's seeing hallucinations and, and burning uh, stuff down and pe- yeah he that are telling him to burn and or flood things yeah um, uh, there's a specificity to a lot of the movie and, and this might be where you know a, a little bit of the I, I could see a little bit of the justification for the Samantha character or I'm sorry Samantha the Charita character um there's a specificity to the movie that gives it a lot of its humor and 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 uh weirdness and and stuff and and i'm thinking of that weird man dog mascot that they're always sitting in front of and it gets the 
axe buried in his oh, head. Yeah. It looks like it's taking a dump. Like, that is a really weird figure. And I really wonder, does that exist somewhere? And if so, why? And if not, did they build it specifically for the movie? I feel like they had to have. Well, then where did it come from? There's no explanation given for it in the movie whatsoever. Like, wait, what are you asking? Like, why did... Like, it's just it's just so bizarre and specific. And it's hilarious. Every time it was on screen, I just laughed because it's such a ridiculous-looking mascot. Oh, yeah. I, th- I mean, I think that... To but, a certain degree, I think that's a comedic element. No, I know, and I'm saying that, like, that specificity is where a lot of the movie's comedy comes from. Like, like right. it's very specific about really weird stuff. And, uh, you know... It, it, it's to its great credit. Like, that could have just been a generic mascot, but that wouldn't have been funny. No. Yeah. And it's a kick-ass soundtrack, too. It, it, it really is. I kind, of, I kind of think it's weird how much I enjoy 80s music for never having been really alive for that era. Yeah, I, I also love, especially like the Tears for Fears and Echoes of the Bunnymen and, and stuff that they have in here is really good. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and, and um, Gary Jewell's cover, of course, which became very famous. Yeah, um, is also great. Um. So, did you think it held up? Um, like, do you think watching it again now you would be up for either watching it another time down the road or recommending it to other people to watch? I would definitely watch it again down the road. I would probably recommend it with other people to watch, but at the same time, it was a little bit of a disappointment based on my memories. Cause like, I remember this being a great movie, and I think it's a pretty good movie with some, I, with some deeply <laughs> silly elements. I did also remember the special effects looking better than they than <laughs> they, they were the, this last the, time the I chest, watched it. The chest, uh, the, the whole like, yeah, the, the water thing, yeah. And, like I thought the first time I thought, oh my god, it looks so cool. And I'm like, oh. Mm. All right. Well, anything else about Donnie Darko? Um, no, I guess not. Right. And again, so next time we'll be talking about Primer. Yes. Yes. And I'm excited, and also scared, but also excited. I do. I, w- I wish we could have gotten Cloud Atlas in because it would have been fun to to argue about it. Maybe when it comes out on DVD. I'm not gonna watch it again. <laughs> Come on, I've pre-ordered it. You did not. I did. Oh my god! <laughs> Get out! <laughs> I really loved this movie. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> uh. It's a stinking pile of shit. Oh my god, see, this is why we gotta talk about it. Oh, this is why we had to... Oh.